forward. We saw that Romans is about the Gospel. The Gospel is its main topic. Uh, What the Gospel is and what the implications for the Gospel are for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. We saw that the Gospel is Jesus. The Gospel is not just a set of beliefs uh, for us to believe or assent to. That's part of it. But the Gospel is God himself at work in the person of Jesus Christ. And we saw because of that, therefore, the Gospel is relational. The Gospel is about relationships. It bears fruit in our relationship to God and we saw that uh, to be a Christian means that you belong to Jesus Christ. Don't just follow him, you belong to him. We saw that we are loved by God and we saw that we are called to be saints and how even uh, being holy is a relational thing because it means you are set apart to God and for God and by God. It's about uh, how we relate to him. In our passage this morning, and I, um, I asked Sally to read yesterday, last week's and today's passage so we could see how the two flow on. In our passage this morning from verse 8 to 17, we'll see that this gospel also bears fruits in our relationships with one another. But the good news of the gospel isn't just that we are reconciled to God, but also that we are reconciled to one another. Now there were uh, a couple of issues that the Roman Christians were facing at this time uh, in the city of Rome. The church in Rome was comprised of Jews and Gentiles together, but the Roman authorities at this point viewed Christianity as a subset of Judaism, just a, a sect or a branch of Judaism. And uh, Judaism was recognised by the Romans as a legitimate religion in the empire. That's why Jews were allowed to have synagogues wherever they were in the various cities across the empire. And so in the early days, Christianity, considered part of Judaism, was also viewed as legitimate by the Romans. The Jewish Christians also understood that their faith was the continuation of the true Israel. It wasn't that Judaism had stopped and they'd started a new religion. They were, they were the continuation of all those who had lived by faith, uh, as modelled by Abraham. So a Christian would have said, we are the true Jews. And so they longed to see their fellow countrymen, their fellow Jews, also recognise Jesus as their Messiah. So in the eyes of the Christians there remained still a very close connection between the Jews and the Christians. However, two things were happening at this time. Firstly, the Jews were increasingly distancing themselves from the Christians because they were saying, no, you if you believe that Jesus is your Messiah, then you are uh, you're a heretic, you're, you're a false teacher. And so they began making it clear that they themselves did not accept Christianity as a subset of their own religion. And that would have placed 
some pressure or a lot of pressure on Jewish Christians. Were they willing to forsake their Jewishness in order to remain faithful to Christ? Were they prepared to be in the eyes of their family and their uh, communities just like Gentiles by following Jesus because of this divide, this break that was happening between Judaism and Christianity. So that was one tension, one issue. Another issue was that uh, the Romans were actually becoming increasingly annoyed with the Jews because uh, across the empire some of the Jews were getting a bit radical and uh, rocking the boat, especially in Jerusalem. Uh, the Jews, uh, a number of Jews, the zealots, were saying we need to take Jerusalem back by force and throw out the Romans. So because of this, intention, this tension, there was restrictions beginning to be placed on the Jewish people by, by Rome, by the empire. And especially in the city of Rome, a tight restrictions were placed on them in terms of them meeting together to worship. Uh, and so many Jews were actually forced to leave Rome for the sake of their own freedom. So this would have exacerbated the difference between Jews and Christians in the church in Rome. The Jewish members would be leaving the church as they left the city and the church was probably becoming more and more uh, Gentile in its, in its balance. And so there would have been a bit of friction as they tried to sort out this question do Gentiles become Jews when they place their faith in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah or do Jews become Gentiles when they accept Jesus who's been rejected by the Jews as their Messiah? There's this tension. How do Gentiles and Jews uh, come together as one people of God in the church? And I think that's why Paul devotes a big section of Romans uh, what's become three chapters worth, to talking about this relationship of Jews to Gentiles uh, and what God's plan is for those people to make them one. So Paul's really keen in his letter to show us how the Gospel not just brings reconciliation and unity between us and the Father, but also how it brings reconciliation and unity between one another. Notice the nature of Paul's relationship with the Roman Christians. In verse 8, he says that he gives thanks for them. All relationships, all genuine relationships really begin with thanksgiving. I will see in a little while that the problem with humanity is that they refuse to give thanks to God. And that's at the heart of the sin problem. But Paul has this relationship and he gives thanks for the Roman Christians. Verses 9 and 10 we're told that he prays for them. So because he is thankful for them, he expresses that thanks in his prayers to God. This leads to a desire for a face-to-face fellowship. Verses 10 and 11. Paul has, has met some of these Roman Christians but not all of them and he has a longing to see them face to face, these people whose reputation has spread across the empire for their faith, uh, he wants to actually see them 
and have that fellowship. And the context of that fellowship, there will be giving. So Paul says, I desire to give you some kind of spiritual gift. I want to come and give to you. But then he says in verse 12 uh, that we might be mutually encouraged. Not only will you be encouraged by my faith, but I will be encouraged by your faith as we have that fellowship. This relationship that Paul has with his brothers and sisters uh, is actually the basis of his understanding of his mission to proclaim the gospel. It's not just that he's been given a job to do and so he's just got to go out and tick the boxes, work out a to-do list and make sure he's done the job. But his desire to bring the gospel to people is that, uh, that this may happen, thanksgiving and prayer and fellowship and giving and receiving between people. So in verse 14 he says, I'm, I'm under obligation to proclaim the gospel but this isn't a legalistic duty kind of obligation. Literally the word is I am under debt or we could say I owe it to these people, to the Gentiles to bring them the gospel. It's out of a personal concern for them as people that he wants to bring the gospel to them. Note he's not saying they deserve to hear the gospel because no one actually deserves to hear the gospel. If we did, then it wouldn't be by grace. It's because they don't deserve it that he owes it to them so that they can know the grace of God and be saved. If we know the great love the Father has set upon us and the great benefits of that love, knowing him and being set free to love one another, we'd be inconsistent as Christians if we were to enjoy and celebrate this love without wanting others to be brought in and to know it as well. When a new person walks into our church, uh, we're happy, aren't we? I see it. A visitor walks into Bethel and um, everyone talks to them. It's wonderful to see that uh, and keep it up. Uh, to be open and welcoming and and interested in people. Um, But why are we happy? Do we think, ah, here's another person that could help us grow the church numerically? Or do we simply have a desire for that person to know and share in the love of God that we also know? Do we rejoice in the privilege it is to be the instrument through which God will communicate his love to that person. So in verse 15, Paul says, uh, the ESV says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Uh, The NIV puts it better, I think, because it says, this is why, this is why I want to preach the gospel to you in Rome. His motivation for coming to Rome is his love for the Roman Christians and his love for the Roman uh, people in that city. And tied in with that is this big picture of the big plan of God. God's plan for the nations to preach the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth. Um, But he knows that underpinning that plan 
is love. God so loved that he sent his only son. Uh, God so loved that he put in action his plan uh, to bless every nation on earth. It's a glorious vision, a vision of human living. A little diagram there in your uh, newsletter that kind of illustrates that. A human being who is truly living, truly alive, knows that they are loved by God and they love him. So loving and loved by God. Uh, They love and are loved by one another in human community. Uh, But all of that in this big picture vision of God's great plan to renew and to reconcile all things to himself. What a glorious vision for human life, to be surrounded by love with a relationship with God, a right relationship with him, a right relationship with those around you and to be part of something great and magnificent that's bigger and greater uh, than ourselves. If you struggle to have this kind of vision, particularly maybe you might struggle to have that vision of, uh, of love for your neighbour or for your brother and sister, then start where Paul starts, with thanksgiving. Whatever barriers there may be in your mind or heart between you and another person, they'll soon be broken down once we intentionally thank God for them and pray for them. It's impossible to be angry with someone if you're thanking God for them and you're praying for them. If we begin with thanksgiving then we'll often be surprised how quickly this thanksgiving and prayer translates into real face-to-face reconciliation and community and fellowship and encouragement and love. So three key things expressed in Paul's introduction to this letter that all combine to make the gospel something of inestimable, inestimable beauty and worth. Something that makes the investment of our lives in it the best investment we could ever make. And it's there in that diagram. Through the gospel a person is brought into right relationship with God where we belong to him, we are loved by him and we're called to be saints. Through the gospel a person is brought into right relationship with other people expressed in thanksgiving and prayer and fellowship and giving and receiving. And through the gospel God's great plan which flows from his love for people for all nations is rolled out and fulfilled. That's why Paul says in verse 16 the gospel is nothing to be ashamed of because that's what it creates or rather that's what he creates through the work of his gospel. And we're told that it is the power of God. It is God himself at work to accomplish this great vision to human life. Uh, The word there is dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. It's it's an 
explosive power, a power that's dynamic. It actually moves and changes things and transforms people. It's never separate from God himself because it is the power of God. As we've already seen, the Gospel isn't ideas to be believed but the action of God himself, the power of God himself acting to bring us to belong to Jesus Christ. And no one is excluded or ineligible from knowing this power. Before Jesus came into the world, God's saving work was focused on Israel, although it was accessible to anyone who would come in, the Queen of Sheba, um, many others who came uh, to, to meet this God of Israel because his reputation was there amongst the nations. But his saving action was focused in on the Jews, on the nation of Israel. But this was all preparation for the time when his focus would be on people of all nations. And Paul's statement here to the Jews first and then to the Gentile is simply a reflection of this history. He's not saying that Jews have priority over Gentiles or more important in God's eyes than Gentiles, but simply that the Gospel that began in Jerusalem spread to Judea and Samaria and now to the ends of the earth. And they were Jesus' words to his apostles, weren't they? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the Jews first, but then to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. And then Paul mentions two key words that are fundamental to our understanding of uh, the book of Romans. They're words that will feature strongly and often in this book. These two words have enormous implications for us, for our faith and our life. And these two words are righteousness and faith. For in it, in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the word righteousness and its sister word justification in the Greek, uh, they come from the same word. Righteousness is fundamental to our understanding of the character and nature of God. It's the key theme that runs right through the Bible that God is righteous and because he is righteous he alone is the one who is qualified to be the judge of human beings. Righteousness is a legal word and it's used in the context of a courtroom. In a courtroom it's the judge who has shown him or herself to be righteous by their understanding of the law and also their right standing before their law. A judge would have no credibility if they themselves were a criminal and a lawbreaker. But it's the judge who then gives the verdict of guilty or not guilty and it's the judge 
who passes the sentence on the guilty person or declares the innocent person to be free. And so God is righteous in this sense because the law is his law. And so he has the right to condemn or to vindicate, to set free anyone based on how they measure according to the standard of the law. But that legal aspect of righteousness is just one aspect of what it means to say God is righteous. And in fact, that legal aspect isn't actually at the heart of what righteousness is all about. To be righteous essentially means to be living in rightly ordered relationships, right relationships with others. God is righteous not just because he's morally pure and holy but because he relates rightly to others. And by rightly I mean in love and truth and fairness and goodness and generosity. It is because God is love that his righteousness means he relates in love and truth and justice and goodness to everyone. That's how the Father, Son and Spirit relate to one another. They live in a rightly ordered relationship with one another, a relationship of love. And this righteousness expressed in love then flows out as the triune God relates rightly to his creation and to his creatures. We know that God is righteous because we see his righteous acts, because he acts. And his righteous acts are always about how he relates to us and how he relates rightly. So when we see that word righteousness or justification which means to be made righteous, think primarily of it as right relationships, whether it's uh, God relating rightly to us, meaning he's righteous, or whether it's we as people who are justified, relating rightly to God and relating rightly to one another. The second word there is faith. You see, if righteousness was just a legal thing, it wouldn't necessitate a relationship. We'd be glad to have a righteous judge declare us not guilty and set us free, but that wouldn't necessarily give us the desire to love that judge or to be in relationship with that judge. But if that righteous judge not only declares us to be not guilty but he is relating rightly to us and his judgement results in us coming into a right relationship with him and a right relationship with others, then our response to that will be one of faith, trusting and loving this judge who's not only forgiven our sins but he's made us whole and complete and set us free to love. So the Gospel reveals to us this rightly relating God God then gives us the gift of righteousness 
called justification so that we respond from the heart in faith. And this transforms us into a person who is living in right relationship with God and with our fellow human beings. And all the while trusting, depending on or having faith in God. Someone might be tempted to look at this diagram of authentic human living and think that they're able to achieve this themselves. That they can be good enough to have God love them or that they can be diligent enough and nice enough to love others and to be loved by them or that they can work hard enough to make this world a better place somehow. But it's very clear here that if this is to happen, if we are to be in the right relationships and to be uh, part of God's plan for creation and the world, it's not by our power or ability or character. It's something God does. It comes to us not by works but by faith. And this little phrase, from faith for faith, or from faith to faith, can be understood in a few ways. It could be read as uh, faith uh, for both Jews and Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles must come to God in faith. So it's, we saw it was the Gospel goes to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. Uh, the Jews uh, must come by faith and the Gentiles must come by faith. It's not that Jews are saved by the law and the Gentiles by faith. So all people, Jews or Gentiles, must be made right with God through faith. We could read it, that life in a relationship with God and one another is by faith from beginning to the end. We're not saved through faith and then we keep saved by works. We don't relate rightly to God by faith but then to one another by works. The whole of the Christian life is one that is lived by faith from beginning to end. Or a third way we could look at it is the fact that this word faith can also be translated faithfulness. And in this sense it refers not to us but to God. We may have faith in God because he is faithful and has proved himself faithful. And the Gospel by revealing his righteousness shows God to be faithful from beginning to end, thus evoking true faith in us. So which of these is it? Is it Jews and Gentiles? Is it uh, the Christian life from beginning to end? Is it that God is faithful from beginning to end? Well, we don't need to pick one, do we? It's all three. All three are true. The true, truly righteous person in the biblical sense is someone who abandons their own self-effort and self-trust and trusts instead what the ever-faithful God has done and continues to do through Jesus Christ. That's why we don't need to be ashamed of the Gospel. 
because the Gospel is ultimately about God, not about ourselves. If it was just about us, we'd have good reason to be ashamed, wouldn't we? Because every day we fail to live up to it. But because the Gospel is about God and he is righteous and perfect and holy and he is love, uh, there's nothing to be ashamed about at all. It's about his work, not our work. It's about how in the face of all human sin and failure, God remains faithful to what he said he would do in his son Jesus. So as we uh, look at the book of Romans over these coming months, I believe this is what God is calling us to He's calling us to lay aside our self-reliance and our self-sufficiency and to to see and hear what he has done and what he continues to do in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Gospel Thank you that it's not our gospel, that it's not something that we have devised or something that we've worked out or something that we've been forced to try and uh, solve the problem of why the world is the way it is and what we can do about it, but it is the good news, the good news of what you have done in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we've heard the words that this gospel is something that of which we cannot be ashamed because this gospel is your power. It is you at work in our lives to justify us and to free us and to transform us. And it is your power in this world to reconcile people to you and to bring them uh, to the place where we stand, where we belong to Jesus Christ and are loved by you and called to be your saints. Father, as we take this journey through this book over the coming months, we ask that each one of us might truly know in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, what it is to be justified and free. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who has accomplished it all. Amen.